Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In her acclaimed memoir, H is for Hawk, author Helen MacDonald reflects on the shock and depression she experienced at the unexpected death of her father. The two had a close bond, marked by their mutual fascination with nature. Thrown by her loss and struggling with depression, MacDonald, an experienced falconer, chose to train a notoriously difficult-to-handle raptor, a northern goshawk. She called her Mabel, and later wrote of her, The hawk was everything I wanted to be, solitary, self-possessed, free from grief, and numb to the hurts of human life. Helen MacDonald told this story of sorrow and becoming one with nature, if briefly, at Benaroya Hall on February 1st, as part of the Seattle Arts and Lectures Literary Arts Series. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Sal's Ruth Dickey introduces the talk. Thank you so much. Good evening, my name is Ruth Dickey and I have the pleasure of serving as the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures and I'm delighted to welcome you to an evening with Helen McDonald. I'd like to begin by thanking the many partners who have made tonight possible. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times. Thanks to tonight's event supporter and bookstore partner for the evening, University Bookstore. Thanks to our reception sponsor, Woodenville Wine Country, and our hotel sponsor, The Four Seasons. Thanks to our organizational supporters, all of whom are listed in our program, and special thanks for significant support of our public programs to Four Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, Nordstrom, and the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. And last but not nearly least, thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight. Yeah. Especially in the dark of winter, we are particularly grateful that our stage is lit with a festive glow. We're delighted to continue our partnership this season with Glassy Baby, who is lighting our stage and donating 10% of the sales of this particular color, Seattle Sunset, all season long to support our Writers in the Schools program. So go online or to any Glassy Baby to bring home some glow and help us fund wits. The format for this evening will be remarks by Helen McDonald, whom I will then join on stage for a lively conversation. I'll include as many of your questions as possible, so if you have a question for Helen or a comment for Sal, please write it on a question card and pass it to an usher. If you would like to tweet, Facebook, Instagram, or otherwise post about tonight's event, we would be most grateful. Our hashtag for tonight is Sal McDonald. After tonight's event, we're working on a special video project and would love to invite you to stop by our information table and be one of our video st stars by sharing what inspires you about Sal. And now, to officially open our evening, I'm proud to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, Writers in the Schools will work in 27 area public schools and at Seattle Children's Hospital to match them with local professional creative writers for year-long residencies to inspire over 6,000 young people to write their own stories, poems, and memoirs. Tonight's reader, Cordelia Christian, will be sharing her poem, Hemlock Wing, which she wrote while working with WITS writer-in-residence Laura Gamache at Topps K-8 School last year. Please join me in welcoming Cordelia. 
hemlock wing. In my sleeping, midnight wings unfold. They are ragged, dusty, like the silencing cobwebs that stir in my breath. The darkness is my mooring. My ship is the resurrection of a lost dream, though that heart was long ago discarded, still beating. Arms ornamented with red-brown feathers, mottled with blood. I am the sparrow, broken, flightless. I lie twitching. I am gone. He is gone, a small curved breek, brown speckled feathers. This is my universe. I am the clock. The echo of his burial is here, under the leaning spruce tree, the wavering tongues of wind gone, his hollow bones unraveled. Thank you so much, Cordelia. We'll have copies of Cordelia's poem at our information table tonight, and it's also available on our blog. And now, the moment we've been eagerly awaiting. Grief reshapes us in surprising and profound ways. In her achingly beautiful memoir, H is for Hawk, Helen MacDonald takes us on her journey through grief after losing her father and the ways it surprised and reshaped her as she chose to train a gosh hawk. This is a book that grabbed my heart and squeezed it. Perhaps you too found your heart unexpectedly seized. MacDonald brings us what it means to be a watcher as her father watched for planes and through his camera's lens as she grew up watching for birds and creatures of the natural world and as she watches and trains her hawk, she writes, I was a watcher. I had always been a watcher. It's a habit you can fall into, willing yourself into invisibility. And it doesn't serve you in life well. Believe me, it doesn't. Not with people and loves and hearts and homes and work. But for the first few days with a hawk, making yourself disappear is the greatest skill in the world. And this great skill, and the work of disappearing into watching doesn't just serve training hawks, it's also the work of a writer to slow down enough to truly see the world, to truly notice, and to reflect back. MacDonald brings all the surprising things to us, surprises of the natural world, of the process of training her hawk, Mabel, of the process of moving through grief, and of the heartbreaking life of T.H. White, all braided together into this profoundly moving book. Indeed, MacDonald's writing life also braids together her gift for watching and her love of many things. She's published poetry, including the book Shaler's Fish, writings about nature, including Falcon, and essays and articles for the New York Times Magazine, and the best-selling memoir H is for Hawk, which won the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction and the Costa Book Award. She's written and narrated radio programs and is a research scholar at Cambridge University. What I love most about MacDonald's writing is how intimate and immediate she makes all of this feel. Hunting, haunting, feathers, thorns, and blood. The way she illuminates what it means to get totally lost in grief. And yet also to find beauty and magic. Here from late in the book she writes, when I found a huge red-winged moth behind the electricity junction box at the end of my road, the box became a magic place. 
I needed to check behind it every time I walked past, and though nothing was ever there, these places held a magical importance, a pull on me that other places did not, however devoid of life they were on all the visits since. What a lovely celebration of the way to watch, to write, can make us notice the stuff of magic and transform the mundane. Helen MacDonald's beautiful writing has changed the way I see birds and skies and rocks and trees and dead chicks and rabbits and cameras and fathers and grief. And for that, I am, and I would imagine all of us are, profoundly grateful. Please join me in welcoming the illuminator of not only the surprising places grief takes us, but of the magical places as well, Helen MacDonald. <laughs> Wow. As we say in England, bloody hell. There's a lot of people here. So I have a favor to ask of you before we start. Um, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. So my lovely mum, who is currently at home right now, when I go on tour, I think she believes that I'm basically just swanning around doing nothing. I don't think she actually thinks that I'm doing these things. So I wondered if we could have... Uh, I'm going to take a photograph of you all. <laughs> Thank you. So if you could wave to my mom. Thank you so much. She'll believe me now. She'll believe me now. Okay. <laughs> That's really great. I'm going to just put this on so I don't go over and bore you all senseless. Um, Thank you so much for coming this evening. I'm going to just quickly talk through the kind of talk I'm going to do. I'm sure many of you have read the book, some of you haven't. So I think the first half of the talk, I'm going to basically um, run through the story of the book. I'm going to do two little readings. Don't worry, I'm not going to just stand here and drone on from the book for hours. Um, and just talk about what happened in that strange and dark year uh, after the death of my father. And then I'm going to talk about what happened next, so what happened when I wrote the book, all the unexpected success that still freaks me out, um, and some of the weird things that happened in those sort of months and years following. So I hope it'll be a fun evening. People sometimes meet me and they're absolutely terrified after reading the book. They think I'm going to be this extremely intense, miserable woman. I mean, I, under I understand that. You know, it's a book about a miserable woman, a dead author, and a bird, so I kind of understand why they might think that. But I'm quite cheerful these days, and I've just had a huge cup of coffee, so if I start talking too fast, you just tell me, okay? So, to serious things, um, the book really started on the 20th of March, um, 2007, a long time ago now, 10 years ago. I was about to go out for dinner with a dear friend of mine, and the telephone rang, and I was like, oh. So I picked up the phone, you know, the keys were in my hand to shut the door. And it was my mom, and she just said this sentence. She said, um, I had a phone call from St. Thomas's Hospital. And there was an edge to her voice that was strange. She said this sentence, and I knew instantly that my father was dead. And I understood then why people say, when they're about to give bad news, are you sitting down? Because my knees buckled under me, and I found myself sitting on the floor. And the world as I knew it, um, blew away, and I think sudden death has a kind of impact on the way you think about the world that other kinds don't. It's not better or worse, it's just 
a different kind of loss. And my dad was a dear friend of mine. Um, there's a word in English, anorak. I don't think you probably don't use it over here. Maybe um, nerd, geek. Yeah, okay, I heard a laugh, it must be the right word. So um, we were both kind of nature geeks, or nature nerds, and when we were small, my dad and I would go out for walks and we would collect things like feathers and stones and um, you know, um, anything really, pine cones, bits of dead animals that we found. I was always popular with my mum. And um, we'd come back and we'd identify them, we'd put them all out on the kitchen table and get the field guide books out. We were, we were real buddies, which is something which is a nice thing to have with your father. And he was a press photographer, a very good one too, so he always had a camera in his hand. And in fact, we just had some photographs taken backstage by a wonderful photographer. And it's just really funny, I have no interest, I mean, no, cameras don't scare me because my entire life when I was growing up, I'd be walking around and my father would be photographing. So there are millions of embarrassing photographs of me as a child in my mum's house. And then he was gone, and we didn't even know he was ill, he had a massive heart attack. And um, something very strange started to happen quite soon after he died. Um, I started dreaming of goshawks. And I've met a lot of people over the last couple of years, and I haven't yet met anyone else who has responded to death in that way. I think I might be the only person in the world. And I started dreaming of one goshawk in particular. So a few years before that, I had worked at a falconry center, kind of zoo, just about birds of prey. And um, there were wild goshawks in that part of the country. And one of them had been chasing something, and it had hit a tree and knocked itself out. Now, goshawks are very strange creatures, and when they're sort of locked onto something, they're a bit like a heat-seeking missile. They just go for it, and if there's something in the way, they quite often, in fact, I think it's one of the main causes of death for young goshawks is simply flying into things. You know, admirable single-mindedness, but it's really dumb, actually. I don't quite know how they've managed to. So this woman found this thing on the ground. It was a gray eagle thing, and she put it into a box thinking it was just, you know, maybe it was dead, maybe, and it moved, and she thought, oh, okay, you know. And then it woke up, and she thought, oh, God, what am I going to do with this? So she was quite scared and took it to this falconry center, and we picked it out of the box and checked it over to make sure it was okay. So I'm going to just read this little bit from the book, which refers to this uh, strange bird. We congregated in a darkened room with the box on the table, and the boss reached her gloved left hand inside. A short scuffle, and then out into the gloom, her gray crest raised and her barred chest feathers puffed up into a meringue of aggression and fear came a huge old female goshawk. Old because her feet were gnarled and dusty, her eyes a deep fiery orange, and she was beautiful. Beautiful like a granite cliff or a thundercloud. She completely filled the room. She had a massive back, a back of sun-bleached gray feathers, was as muscled as a pit bull and intimidating as hell, even to staff who spent their days tending eagles, so wild and spooky and reptilian. Carefully, we fanned her great broad... Yeah, there's going to be a lot of this. Um, I'm really embarrassed to say that when I talk about hawks doing things, I tend to do the action. I like to think it's a, it's a kind of hangover of the psychological transferences of that year. I try really hard not to do it, but 
No, it's just, it's a gimme. I'm sorry about that. I'll probably start flapping my arms later. You can all laugh at me. So we ran our fingers along her bones and we checked her collarbone and her thick scaled legs and toes and inch long black talons and her vision seemed fine. We held an, uh, a finger in front of each eye in turn. Snap, snap, her beak went and then she turned her head to stare right at me. She locked her eyes on mine down her curved black beak, black pupils fixed. And then, right then, it occurred to me that this goshawk was bigger than me and, more important, a dinosaur pulled from the forest of Dean. Nothing was wrong with her at all. We took her outside and let her go. She opened her wings and in a second was gone. It was as if she'd found a rent in the damp Gloucestershire air and slipped through it. And that was the moment I kept replaying over and over. That was the recurring dream. And from then on, the hawk was inevitable. So I'm going to just go back to, um, well, maybe I won't talk about me when I was small. Maybe I'll talk about my, my niece. Okay, I have a 13-year-old niece called Amy, who is lovely. And a few years ago, she was obsessed with Taylor Swift and Minecraft. Uh, now she's not. Now she's uh, obsessed with something called Dance Moms. Does anyone? <laughs> okay, some of you know about Dance Moms. Um, these seem to me very normal obsessions for a 12 or 13 year old. Uh, I wasn't like that. Um, my obsessions were birds of prey. You know, all my friends had pictures of pop stars on their bedroom walls, and I had photographs of kestrels. Um, and I, you know, when I wrote this book, I tried to be, well, I tried to be not British. I tried to get the emotion out onto the page and be really open about how things were. But there were um, there were a few bits where I said things that were very embarrassing. And the most embarrassing thing to me was that confession that when I was very small, I loved hawks so much that I used to try and go to sleep with my arms behind my back like wings. I mean, that's just excruciating. I, d I mean, I've just told you all again, what's wrong with me? Um, and I wanted to be a falconer more than anything else in the world. And I told my parents this, my wonderful, long-suffering parents. And um, they were like, yes, you know, hoping it would die down, and it didn't. And um, I think only twice my mother turned to me and said quietly, are you sure you wouldn't rather be a lawyer? <laughs> Just twice, bless her. So I, I became a falconer, and over the years I did fly many different kinds of birds of prey. I flew falcons mainly, you know, the really speedy aerial kind of F-16 type ones. Um, <clears throat> eagles even, owls even. Don't believe what they say about owls, owls are really dumb. Um, they're lovely, but nothing there. So I'm really, I'm really giving you the, the secret inside story tonight. I'm all embarrassed now, I'm going to have to drink some water. But there was one kind of bird that I never, ever wanted to touch, and I think you know what that was. It was a goshawk, and there's a, there's a reason for this. They have a reputation in falconry as being... Well, I don't, I don't know how to... I mean, I, I thought for a long time to try and explain to people what a goshawk is like. So for a while, I used to say that they were like A-10 warthog aeroplanes, but, you know, that didn't get across to everyone what they were like. Oh tank-busting aeroplanes. And then one day I hit upon the perfect analogy. All I have to say is, goshawks are the Christopher Walkens of the bird world. 
that's perfect. They're nervy, psychopathic, murderous, untrustworthy weirdos, right? <laughs> so last year, I went on a little tour in the East, and I was in this town, and I said this to some people, and instead of everyone kind of going, oh, right, yeah, yeah, and Christopher Walken, there was dead silence. And I thought, that's really strange. How does no one in this town know who Christopher Walken is? Anyway, afterwards, these people kept coming up to me and they said, you know he lives here. <laughs> He's a really nice man. He's not a psychopath. So I had to kind of apologize over and over again and say, I know he's an actor, right, right, so anyway. But yeah, goshawks. So, you know, there's a bit in the book where I talk about how I once met a man who flew goshawks and he said to me, the way to make goshawks uh, behave if they're not really doing very well in the training is to let them just kill things. It sorts them out. And I'm kind of backing away from him, kind of like, okay, you know, security, security. They have this reputation as being, yeah, Christopher Walken's feathered shotguns. And they were very much kind of boys' birds. I didn't want to know. And then my dad died, and all I could think about was a goshawk. And all I knew was that I wanted to get back into falconry and have one. I knew it would be a very, very deep distraction from all the emotional pain I was feeling. So I, um, it sounds worse than it was. I, I bought a goshawk on the internet. Um, <laughs> I knew the person that had bred her, and um, it wasn't quite as sort of, it wasn't Craigslist or something. So, um, so I drove up to Scotland uh, on a very long drive and went to this quayside in a town called Stranraer. Have any of you been to Stranraer? No, of course not. Why would you go to Stranraer? So, so you know the sort of. I mean, it's like a drug deal. I'm pacing up and down, chain-smoking with 800 pounds in my pocket and a can of Red Bull, you know. It's very dodgy. And then this man appeared with these two boxes and came towards me. And as I watched him walk, I felt a little thrill of excitement because they weren't... They were kind of moving weirdly. It wasn't to do with the way he was swinging them. It was to do with the fact that there were live things in the boxes. And... Um, this is my second and final reading of the evening. I'm going to just read you the bit about what it was like to see Mabel for the first time. Um, I should probably say why I called her Mabel. There's a kind of tradition in falconry that if you give a hawk uh, a scary name, like, you know, I don't know, Vulcan or Slayer, um, or in one memorable thing, I saw a photograph of a man with a tiny kestrel captioned, the author with his hawk, Thunderer. Um, <laughs> If you give them names like that, they will just sit on the floor and squeak at you and do nothing. Uh, so you give them cutesy names. So I have a friend with a goshawk called Bunty. And um, I have another friend, he'll kill me if he hears this. I have another friend with a goshawk called Baby Doll. Um, but even he's really embarrassed about that and calls her BD for short. So Mabel was a cutesy name, but also it's Latin. It's Latin for... Uh, Amabilis, meaning lovable or dear. So even though I wanted to cut loose from the world and tear myself away from all attachments, I guess there was still some part of me that wanted the hawk to love me, I guess. It's a very weird moment. Anyway, here's the, uh, the bit when I open the box. Another hinge, untied, concentration, infinite caution, daylight irrigating the box. Scratching talons, another thump, and another thump. The air turned syrupy, 
slow, flecked with dust, the last few seconds before a battle. And with the last bow pulled free, he reached inside, and amidst a whirring, chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering, and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box. And in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us, and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. I stole that from Hamlet. <laughs> Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She's a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a griffin from the pages of an illuminated bestiary, something bright and distant like gold falling through water. I was quite impressed. <laughs> so I put her in the car, took her back to my house in Cambridge, uh, college house. Oh, before I did that, actually, I should point out that um, as I drove away, I mean, this, you know, it's the ferry to Northern Ireland, you know, it's kind of, there's been a bit of a history of stuff there. And as I drew away, I saw this poor man, a goshawk breeder, surrounded by armed policemen who wanted to know what the hell he was doing. And um, I just kept driving. He was fine, he was fine. So I got Mabel home and then began the extraordinary withdrawal of me from life, really. I became a, a monk, I became a medieval monk. I pulled out the phone, I told my friends to stay away. Um, I filled the freezer full of dead animals and frozen pizzas. The pizzas were for me. Um, and I began this extraordinary thing, which is about 6,000 years old. I think falconry is one of the oldest animal-human relationships that doesn't involve the animal being eaten. And I think it's a very interesting one, and if it's done correctly, a very enlightened one, because, of course, when you fly a bird free, if it wants to just go, you know, nothing's stopping it. It only comes back to you because you have forged these incredibly strong bonds of trust and friendship and love and also because you're waving raw steak in the air, but, you know, that also... <laughs> so it's all done, hawk training, through positive reinforcement with gifts of, of, of meat. Um, you can't punish hawks, you can't shout at them, they don't understand that, they're not social creatures. And what you do eventually is you ask, oh, I, I can move around, I have a Madonna mic, look. So you first get the hawk to jump to your hand for food, and then maybe fly a little bit on a line called a créance. There's lots of good technical terms in falconry that are no good to anyone unless you're doing very difficult crosswords. And then um, eventually what you want is your hawk to fly to you instantly if you raise your hand and whistle, say 50 yards or so on this line, and then you take the line away and the hawk flies free. And it's a very big moment where all those lines that you've set up of trust and love are tested. But I also had to do something else, and that was to get the hawk used to people. And um, I'm sure some of you have been to Cambridge in England. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how to say this, it's, um, it's quite an eccentric place. Um, but there are only a certain number of ways you're allowed to be eccentric in Cambridge. So you can wear like a lot of tweed jackets with holes in and just speak Latin. That's fine, right? That's completely normal in Cambridge. But if you try walking around the town centre with a bloody great hawk on your fist, people will look at you as if you're a little bit odd. And um, this is just part of the process of, you know, getting a hawk used to humans. 
And uh, there were some moments that stick in my mind. Uh, small boys used to run up and shout, Harry Potter, at me. <laughs> it used to make me quite cross, because I'd be like, it's not an owl. <laughs> it's a goshawk, uh-huh. Um, and then, slightly more poignantly, I'd quite often see parents walk past with very small children, and mum or dad or aunt or whatever, or grandma, would lean down to the child and say, sotto voce, but I could always hear, don't go near the hawk lady, darling. <laughs> I was a weirdo, right? And it was a very weird thing that happened in that the people that came and spoke to me, or actually wanted to interact with me, or indeed even could see me, were outsiders. So, homeless people, people who were drunk, foreign students, tourists, travelers, uh, recent immigrants, um, teenage goths loved her. <laughs> I had a, a little party that used to follow me around. It was wonderful. I mean, it was just great. It was like I was some kind of rock star with that bird. Um, and then, I mean, it was very weird what was happening. The city around me became very odd. Everything I saw, I was starting to see through her eyes because I'd been with her so long. And if any of you who, tr who keep animals and train animals know, the way that you know how to react to them and respond to them is because you watch them so closely, you can kind of see what they're thinking. And you do that, you feel what they're thinking by sort of imaginatively putting yourself inside their heads. And that's what I'd done. So when I walked around, I found things like traffic lights and buses completely bewildering. And then one day I'm standing there with her looking at a bicycle thinking, I don't really know what that is. And um, she does this. See, I'm doing it. And it's a pigeon that's coming down to land in a tree. And everything about the hawk changes. It's like her weapon systems have suddenly kind of locked into play, and she stands on her toes and cranes her neck, and she's basically going, this is interesting, yeah, this. And she's staring at it, and of course, I suddenly realize that everything about my hawk that's tuned is tuned to hunt and kill, and I hadn't really thought this through. There I was, running away from death as fast as possible, and yet I had a hawk and what hawks do is kill things. And I knew that I would let her catch things because, as I say in the book, I think you have a moral obligation if you keep a bird of prey to let it do what it would do in the wild. And, you know, I think it's a bit like saying, you know, not letting a hawk hunt is a bit like saying, you know, I love kids, I've got loads of kids. I don't like, I don't like them playing. I don't let them do it. It's what they're made of. So there followed this extraordinary um, time when I would go out with the bird every day onto the hills and the slopes and the landscapes around Cambridge. Um, sometimes people say to me, my God, it's, it, it's clearly such beautiful land around Cambridge. You know, I must visit. And I'm like, no, really, it isn't. It's boring, scrappy farmland. But I was lit from within with this very strange uh, vision, which was my imagined vision of the hawk. And we'd go out every day and she would catch her dinner um, and I would share it with her. I mean, I'd cook my half. I wasn't quite at the stage when I was eating raw rabbits. I mean, it was pretty feral, but never quite that feral. And I had very little money at that time, so it was pretty cool. I was doing the living off the land thing. Um, I used to haunt the reduced shelves of local supermarkets, and I used to create these terrible meals. 
I remember once I had um, stale muffins and stewed rabbit. It's a really bad signature dish. And in fact, last year I was in Canada and there was a wonderful event where they held a kind of dinner in, the on in honor of the book and they served rabbit because of the book. And I was like, I can't eat this. <laughs> but it was instructive. It made me realize a lot of things. It made me realize how tiny the boundary is between life and death. I'm a very sentimental person. I don't like even killing flies. I'm the kind of person that, you know, if there's a fly in the house, I'll spend ages kind of, you know, Mr. Miyagi-ing it, trying to get it in a claw and let it go. And there I was, um, because when hawks, goshawks catch animals, they don't, you know, they don't magically die suddenly from shock. The hawk just starts eating. And at some point, you know, the poor thing is going to die. But it takes a while. And I had to run in and put these things out of their misery. And that was a big deal. It was never easy, but it made me realize that, you know, death is, is very hidden for us. You know, animal death supports our culture. Yeah, it's always behind walls. We don't see it. And um, it made me feel a lot more accountable and responsible um, than I ever had before. And deeply human, which was rather dark, because the only time I actually felt human those days was when I was killing rabbits. So, I mean, I wasn't in a good place. And things began to get even darker. I remember one morning I woke up and there was tears. I mean, it was actually tears, but my pillow was wet. And I thought maybe I had an eye infection or something. But um, I'd been crying all night. I wasn't letting myself grieve my father. I wasn't letting myself do anything human at all. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I remember the... I wasn't in a good way. I remember one day that the mailman knocked on the door and I just instantly leapt and hid behind the sofa. Um, that's not, not really the right way to approach a visit from the mailman. And um, I began to realize that I wasn't well. And this came into sharp relief when I went to my father's memorial service in London and I stood in front of an, a congregation and realized that I'd made this great mistake. And the mistake is that we all believe, because we're all told it in all the books, that when you're broken, nature can heal you. It's this place of infinite solace and renewal. And if you're broken, you go into nature and it will sort of salve your emotional and psychic wounds and make you whole. And, and uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But as usual, I went too far. And I basically, in my imagination, turn myself into this creature that I wanted to be, this creature that was solitary and self-possessed and fierce and had no human emotions and lived in the present moment. And it was killing me. So I went to the doctors and um, it was very funny actually, in, in, re in retrospect, I was quite desperate at the time. So I walk in and there's this sort of nice man with a crumpled cotton shirt and a pair of red braces, Dr. Stewart. And um, I sat down and I said, so, um, I think I might be depressed. Well, I wasn't sure because I'd been low before, but this depression was different. It was, it was very beautiful, the, the landscape around me, but I wasn't functional. So I said, I, I don't really have a job anymore, and my father died, and I don't have a house, and I haven't got any money, and I was just, all this stuff. I, mean, I, I didn't mention the hawk. And I did a talk once, and a woman stood up at the end and said, um, I have a question. I said, hello. And she said, I'm a psychoanalyst. And then she just didn't say anything for a bit. And I was like, what am I supposed to say here? I've, I've heard about this. You know. And she said, why didn't you mention 
the hawk to the doctor, and I said, oh, yeah, that, I hadn't really thought about that. And I guess, thinking about it now, that I didn't really see there was any difference between the hawk and me. We were the same thing, which sounds bonkers now, but back then, I didn't see any difference between us. So anyway, the doctor gave me this questionnaire, um, and uh, it was all kind of questions about how you felt and stuff. And one of the questions, I remember vividly reading it, because I was very worried I was getting them wrong, which is what you do, I think, when you're not really in a good way. There was no wrong or right answers. And um, this one said, do you feel that you take less care of your personal appearance than formerly? And I remember sitting there, and I hadn't washed my hair for a month, um, <laughs> at least, and I had scratches all over me from thorns. I had mud and holes in my clothes. I was basically wearing rags and I had rabbit blood on my trousers. And I remember thinking, do I take less care of my personal appearance? I don't know, do I? I mean, you know, if you needed one kind of moment that, yeah, I was, I was broken. So I, I well, antidepressants, et cetera, I made a big effort to see my friends and crawl back into the world that I'd left behind. And um, there was this one moment, one morning, when I knew that things were going to be okay. And I was looking out of the window, as I did every morning, at the weather, because I needed to check whether it was going to be a good day to fly the hawk. You know, is it going to rain? Is it a cold front? I'm standing there going, there's a cold front coming over. Seven-tenths cloud, wind from the northwest. And then I just stopped all these aviator-type calculations. And I found myself thinking, the sky looks really beautiful this morning. And um, I think that was the moment I knew it was going to be okay. And the big lesson that I learned from all this, well, there's lots of lessons, I guess. One is that when you lose someone very dear to you, I think everyone falls off the world for a little while and comes back changed. That's how it works. And, um, and I think, too, that I learned that it's... We use nature as a mirror of our own selves, of our own needs. I saw in this hawk everything that I wanted to be at that time. And then when I became a little bit better, I realized that the great joy of that bird, the great joy was that she was nothing like me, that she was completely different from me. I mean, she's a bird, for goodness sake. And yet we shared this life, you know. We'd watch TV together and go out hawking, and we'd play. You know, I'd throw bits of paper at her, and she'd catch them and throw them back to me. Um, actually, I told some goshawker friends about this, and they were absolutely horrified and said, you don't play with goshawks. And then later I discovered that they all do, they just don't like to talk about it. So, <laughs> so I'm going to just read this tiny, tiny sentence from the end, which just captures what that was like. Um, in my time with Mabel, I've learned how you feel more human once you have known, even in your imagination, what it's like to be not. And I've learnt, too, the danger that comes in mistaking the wildness we give a thing for the wildness that animates it. Goshawks are things of death and blood and gore, but they are not excuses for atrocities. Their inhumanity is to be treasured because what they do has nothing to do with us at all. That was the year I put Mabel in an aviary. You know, I saw my friends, you know, years went on, I flew Mabel more, you know, we had it in a slightly less crazed manner. And I ran out of money because, you know, I was in like a freelance academic at that time. Now, um, I'm going to confess a story here. At one point when I was living in Cambridge and trying to make a living by just doing freelance academic work, I was burgled. And uh, the, the police officer that came round took the report. And um, 
She said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a freelance academic. And I watched her write, unemployed. <laughs> so accurate. Bless her. That was a moment I'm like, yeah, actually, I should do something with my life. Anyway, so um, things were not brilliant financially, shall we say. And I, I ended up going back aged 40 to live with my mom. Now, I love my mum. She's one of the wonder, most wonderful people in the world. But as you can imagine, this was, I really felt that my life had pretty much ended at this point. I mean, there was a fridge full of food, but I thought by age 40, I'd have you know, family, I'd have a house. You know, I had that kind of sense that that's what it would be like. And instead, I was living, living with my mum. Um, but at the same time, I began to think that there was something, to, a story that I could somehow maybe write that story down of what happened in that year with the hawk. There was something about it that kept nagging away at me. It felt like it wasn't just something that had happened to me. It felt like an old story that had happened through me. It's a very weird distinction, but it felt like a kind of like a myth, like a trip to the underworld and back. And I thought, I kind of want to write this down. Um, so I did. I, uh, I went house-sitting for a friend in Brighton. Do you, have any of you been to Brighton? I, sorry, I keep asking you questions about where you've been. It's ridiculous, it's like going to the hairdresser. You've been to... Um, Brighton is, this, is a wonderful place. It's basically a, a messy, slightly sleazy seaside town on the south coast, renowned for its crime and antique dealers, and wonderful. It's a huge gay hub as well. It's a really, really amazing place. And it was a, a town that was once memorably described by the uh, journalist Keith Waterhouse as a town that it looks like it's perpetually helping police with their inquiries, <laughs> which is great. And it's a really... And something about being in that place made me just go, what the hell? I'm going to just write a proposal, a book proposal, like they tell you to do in all the books, you know, write a proposal. And, and I already had an agent, and... Um, which she'd signed me up years ago, and then I'd done nothing. I think she probably thought I'd died. Um, so I wrote this proposal, which had a few chapters, the first two chapters, and a, you know, what was going to be in it, and why it was going to be a good book. I mean, I didn't really believe this, but, you know. Um, I remember, okay, I'm going to just tell you all of the embarrassing stuff now. I remember one point, I just felt that I couldn't do it. I wasn't brave enough to write this proposal because it was a big deal. I was frightened of being a writer. I was frightened of failure. And I was trying to write this bit which said why it was going to be a great book, which is hard to do when you don't know, you know. And um, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this bit as Val Kilmer's character in Top Gun. I'm going to write this as Iceman. I'm wearing aviators, I'm a complete jerk, and that's, and that's how I wrote that bit. I've never, I've never told anyone that before. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I confessed that. You see, writers, we have these tricks, you know? Anyway, so the book uh, was sold, and there's a really interesting story about how it was sold, because you know, it went, this proposal went out to different publishers, and then my agent rang me and said, they want to see you, and I'm instantly terrified. Now, I, I'm a really, really bad interviewee. I've been to job interviews throughout my entire life, and I have ruined every single one. I'm the kind of person that when I go into an interview, I'm so scared I become defensive and then aggressive. This is not what you want in an interview. 
So I was terrified. I went up to these publishers and I thought, oh God, oh God, oh God. So um, I went into the first one shaking and they started to talk to me and there was some tea on the table and some biscuits. And I, I sort of said, can I have one? And they looked at me really strangely and said, yes. <laughs> and I, I began to realize that actually they were trying to impress me because they liked the proposal. And this was so bewildering, I could barely speak. Anyway, went to the next, this is all in one day, went to the next publishers and they had tea and biscuits and coffee and sandwiches. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to choose my publisher from what stuff they give me on the table. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, I can't believe it. So the next publisher, these are all nameless publishers, they were all lovely, um, had all those things and gave me free books. And the next publisher, okay, so this is the big publisher, the penultimate one, had chocolates, sandwiches, free books, coffee, tea, and wine. And I'm like, it's a, it's a done deal. This is, I'm going to go with these people. If they, offer, if they want to buy the book, um, they can have it. And then I went to the final publisher, which, as you, you know, probably tell from the way this story is shaped, was the one I went with in the end, Jonathan Cape in London. And I walked into this room. Um, actually, the, the managing director came down, or the editor came down to the foyer to meet me, which none of the others had done, took me upstairs into this room with this huge table with nothing on it. Huh. And he turned to me and he said, do you want a mug of tea? And I said, yes, uh, that would be nice. Uh, and he went off and he made it himself. Masterstroke. Um, that's something about that kindness and that informality and the fact that in the meeting they asked questions of a sophistication and uh, it, it was an amazing meeting and I knew that I'd, I wanted to uh, go with them. And then there was a kind of auction over the phone, which was my most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. So a month ago, I was in Chile doing an assignment for the New York Times, and we had to move from our camp because a volcano erupted. That wasn't as exciting as this uh, auction by phone. <laughs> Seriously, it was amazing. And then I had a book deal, and then the adrenaline subsided, and then I had to write the damn thing, which was really scary. <laughs> And it's scary writing a book like this. You know, I had to wait sort of five years to get to the point where I had enough emotional distance to be able to tackle it. I had to wait until I was a kind of character in my own book. But it was tough, and it made me cry a lot, partly because I miss my dad, and partly because when you're a writer, quite often you're crying because you think you can't do it. And I remember one day when the editor rang, I actually hid under my desk. Um, which is a little bit weird, because he couldn't see where I was. I don't, I don't know why I was hiding under my desk. And I went, to, um, I went to Texas and I went through all of the T.H. Uh, White archive there. So he's a very big part of the book, this, this very sort of sad and poignant figure who um, tried to train a hawk himself in the 1930s and made a very bad job of it. That's not why he's in the book. Um, he's a very instructive figure. He's basically a story of a man who has a lot of love within him, um, but doesn't have any of the tools to know how to care for anything, including himself. And he, has, he gives us Goshawk a terrible time and treats it like his own inner self and just punishes it. It's a very sad story. Um, and I was reading all of his uh, materials in this archive in Texas, and you know, I'd turn the page and I'd see a bit where he'd stuck a lock of hair from his dog that had just died and tied it with a ribbon, and there were tear spots all over the page. And I knew he want, I wanted more of him in the book. And that's really why T.H. White is in the book so much. Um, 
and then came the, sorry this is such a then then came this first I had, I had to give a talk at a library in Norwich and this library in Norwich was a very small library and the book hadn't come out and I was very nervous when I turned up and there were three people there two of whom were librarians <laughs> and the other one was a librarian's mum and they'd made this huge spread of scones spread with jam and cream, you know, the ultimate luxury English food. And there must have been about 60 of them on these platters, ready for the audience that didn't come. And I heard one of them in the office ringing up people saying, please come, it's really embarrassing, there's nobody here. So I talked about the book. And at the end, you know, I tried to eat lots of scones and uh, <laughs> was quite soon in pain because um, I felt so guilty. And they, they got a Tupperware box and they sort of just crammed them all in. And by the time I got home, it was like a kind of sort of, like kind of soup with bits in. I mean, it was just, and I manfully just for, you know, days after felt like I had to eat these scones. I was spooning them into my mouth. Anyway, the book came out. It did really well in a way that I didn't expect. Um, I thought it was a strange one. I thought no one would read it. It, uh, it caught fire. And I'm still so humbled by that. Um, there have been a lot of, you know, a book is like a ship, I think. You know, you can, you can build a boat in your backyard, in your garage or whatever, but you can't take it anywhere without a crew. And I just, you know, I guess, you know, my, my sort of stance on this is that um, books don't go anywhere unless you have that crew of editors and publicists and booksellers. Lots of books and readers, you know. I've met so many people over the last couple of years who have reduced me to kind of, you know, mess, a complete mess, um, and it's taught me that, you know, lonely, you know, grief is the loneliest thing that any of us really any, ever go through. Uh, it just splits you off from the rest of the world like that, and yet, you know, we all suffer it alone, and yet we all, all suffer it. So in a way, you know, it's made me realize that, you know, um, loneliness and grief is part of who we are, but we all go through it in a strange way together, and that's been really a really extraordinary thing. Um, I'm kind of sort of slowly running out of time, but I want to just um, tell you what, what some exciting things that are coming up. Um, so this year I spent, a, I actually trained another hawk. Mabel passed away very suddenly in 2013. She got a horrible fungal infection, um, died very quickly. Uh, a few doors down from her aviary, someone was turning over their compost heap and these fungal spores called aspergillus kind of flew into the aviary and she just conked out. And I wet buckets, I still miss her. I've got a little vase of her feathers on my desk and I get them out and hold them sometimes when I'm feeling sentimental. But we've done a big documentary for um, the BBC and PBS. It's not an advert, it's just me saying it was a very weird experience because I trained a new goshawk with a film crew. I don't think this has ever been done. There was no fakery to it. And I can let you all know, in case you wanted to know this fact, that it is very stressful training a goshawk. It is much more stressful training a goshawk with a film crew, but we got through it. We just about got through it, and she's called Lupin, and she's amazing. And then another weird thing's happened, and that is that there's going to be a movie. I know, right? An intake of breath. You know, how? How can you make this into a movie? No one talks. It's okay, it's going to be great. So um, we, got this, we got this phone call uh, a little bit 
quite soon after the book came out. Have any of you, um, do any of you watch Game of Thrones? Yes. Um, so Lena, Lena, who plays Lena Hedy, who plays the evil queen Cersei, has bought the rights and is going to play me on screen. And I went to meet her, and it was absolutely adorable. All my friends said, um, "So um, Helen, if she offers you any wine, don't drink it." <laughs> so that was really interesting. I, I mean, I, and I made a decision with that that you know, like I was saying about a book being like a ship. You know, I made this thing. I didn't think it would be a work that would fix my grief. I, didn't, I thought I was over it completely. Um, but when I finished the last few paragraphs and I, you know, I finished the book, I felt sick, I felt nauseated, I felt dizzy, and I realized that the book really had been still working on some things that were deep inside me. And now it was over. And that book was a proper goodbye, not just to my father, but to the person I had been back then. And um, so now when people sort of say, how do you feel about it becoming you know, a book, a film? I just say, you know, it's not mine. It's not mine. It's like you baked a cake. Oh, I really am full of metaphors tonight, aren't I? Cakes, ships, what else is there? But it's like you've baked a cake and you've put your heart and soul into it. And the only thing you can do with it is give it away to other people to do what they want with it. So, um, you know, uh, although my friend Stuart is insisting that Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin should play him <laughs> in the film. So life's very weird these days. It's not what it was before. I'm doing a lot of traveling. I'm not getting a lot of people I've never met before. I'm having to be an extrovert, which is very interesting because I am an introverted, miserable so-and-so. Uh, it's actually really, actually quite like people. I've decided they're really lovely. What was I thinking before? Um, I still wear too much black, uh, but I miss, I miss my, uh, I miss my time with Mabel, and I miss my time with, with with a hawk by my side every day. And sometimes this kind of thing seems very very far from my previous life. But two days ago, I was sitting at a breakfast room in a hotel in Pittsburgh, and I was kind of munching on a bagel, thinking, why don't we have bagels this nice in England, and getting quite angry. And um, it had just snowed, and I looked out of the window, and there was a line of uh, trees in front of some just ordinary houses. And the sun came out, and it was shining off the snow. And as I watched, I saw a big female red-tailed hawk and you know when the snow reflects off them and they glow in the sky? And I watched her for, for about five minutes and she was hunting squirrels in the trees. And I just sat there and I thought, you know, wow. Hello, you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this evening. Thank you. So, now it's, um, it's time to grill me. So I should probably just say that when I, um, when I, uh, I, I used to give talks to small groups, one day a, a five-year-old boy stood up when it was question time. I don't know what he was doing. I mean, what he was doing there. And he stood in a chair because he was very short and he was at the back and he put his hand up. And he said, um, I have a question. And I said, oh, go ahead. He said, what was the biggest thing Mabel ever murdered? <laughs> and I, I just sort of thought about it for a bit, and I said, I, I think it was probably, um, probably just a, a big rabbit. And he went, oh. <laughs> So I said to him, well, what, what, did you, what did you think I was going to say? And he just went, a horse. <laughs> <laughs>
So I, I really disappointed that poor lad. I mean, I just felt like I, my credentials were ruined with him, you know. You guys, are, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I promise not to start off with that question. The biggest yeah, thing. what was the biggest thing? Maybe, yeah, you know the answer to that one now. Um, if you all have questions, please write them on question yeah. cards and pass them to ushers. But I'd love to start. One of the things that really struck me about Mabel was just her physicality mm. and the danger. And it seemed like fear should have been present, but it wasn't. And I wonder if you could talk some about, were you ever afraid of Mabel? And how did fear play a role or not play a role? That's really interesting. Um, so I was never afraid of her. Mm. I don't think I've ever really been afraid of Hawks, uh, but I think the mental state that I was in at the time made me numb to lots of things that otherwise... So, okay, this is a, a sort of slightly roundabout way of answering this. I've had an enormous numbers of people say to me since they've read the book that that description of what it's like to be in a house with a new hawk, a scared wild hawk, you know, trying to win its trust mm -hmm. and being isolated. Mm -hmm. They were like, it's just like, reminds me of when I had a baby. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, what? And they said, seriously, you're in a house with something very, very precious. Mm -hmm. It can't speak. You're the person that has to care for all of its needs and you don't know whether you're doing it right and you're just terrified all the time that you're going to break it. And I'm like, well, that's what it was like. And that's what it felt like. So I was never, ever frightened of her. I just saw her as a being that was frightened of me and I just wanted to reassure her that I wasn't a monster. And that's, you know, that was... And she was never a kind of what they call... It's a lovely falconry term. She was never, never a footy hawk. You don't want a footy hawk when you have a goshawk. Um, the, the writer Steve Bodier once described being footed by a goshawk as an experience akin to sticking your hand into an electric light socket. I can testify that it's very like that, only they don't let go. So, um, yeah. But having said that, oh, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much here. That half a cup of coffee is really kind of rough. Just, um, where this bird I trained this year, Lupin, uh, was different. And all hawks have different personalities, and Mabel was a complete sweetie. Lupin, however, there was this one point, and, you know, the cameras are on me. And I'm getting her to try and get her to jump to my hand for the first time. And there's this one moment where she just slammed her foot onto my glove and then kind of just looked right into my eyes. And I just went, oh my, I was absolutely terrified for a split second. And that's never happened with Mabel. But she wanted to kill me. We became friends afterwards, but that was quite scary. Yeah. I'm so glad. These are all like, like relationship stories, aren't they? Yeah, there was that one moment when, but everything was fine later, you know. You were just talking about how much space there was in time between the experiences of losing your dad and training Mabel yeah. and when you wrote the book. And I'm just curious, did you keep a journal or keep notes? And are you a regular journal keeper? Really embarrassed because I'm supposed to be a writer. No. Um, I really admire writers who do that because when I, I mean I do it occasionally and it makes such a difference um, you know trying to record your direct observation and your emotions as they happen mm -hmm. produces a quality of writing that is I think really really distinctive and I love doing mm -hmm. um, so what happened was when my father died I began to write again and it wasn't really because I wanted to keep a journal of all the miserableness it was just that I wanted to write the world back into existence mm -hmm. to, to make sense of it somehow and writing somehow did that and then that journal had a hawk in it, because there was a hawk. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wrote it kind of episodically and fitfully right the way through that season. But the weird thing is, I didn't refer to it 
I mean, there are a couple of times I did. There's a bit where I go to a show where there are some different apples and they've got weird names and they're different colors. I couldn't quite remember that, so I had to go back and check. Mm -hmm. But the rest of that year is so crystalline in my memory. Mm. I have a terrible memory. I can't remember anything. Like, what did I do yesterday? You know, I was on an airplane or something. Um, but I remember distinctly everything about that year, like even down to the particular shapes of leaves under my feet when Mabel was doing something or and the, the feel of a rainstorm washed down the back of my neck. You know, it was an and I think that's to do with bereavement. I think it did something to my, my recall. So I didn't need to really uh, re refer to that, but it does worry me, you know, how the earth am I going to write another book? You know, I, I'm, I can't remember anything, you know. So I think, I think I'm going to have to start journaling again. So I'm going to write all about this tonight when I get home. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about your writing is you write beautifully across so many different forms, poetry and essays and nonfiction and the memoir. Oh, thank you. And I'd love to hear, are they different for you? And how do, do you have a favorite? No, they're all different. Um, I don't write poetry so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, to be blunt, I am, is I think I have things I want to say now. Mm -hmm. When I wrote poetry, I was, um, and I love writing those poems, and you'll see them, they are, um, they're very playful, experimental, they're a bit like abstract expressionist paintings in words, and I loved writing those things, and I'm kind of proud of them, but I wrote them when I was 20, 21. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a kind of teenage diary thing when I read them now. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> They're very much kind of, I mean, I think I might write poetry again, but I think that was sort of then, that kind of poetry was then, it was very much then. Um, and then I'm writing a lot for newspapers in New York Times Magazine, which is an extraordinary experience because it's not like writing for English newspapers. So in England, if you write for a newspaper in England, you just write some stuff, send it off, and then they'll publish it or not publish it. Or more often, they'll publish it, but they'll take the important bit out and they don't tell you. <laughs> that makes no sense anymore. Um, but with the New York Times, there's this extraordinary process of working with an editor to shape a story, and that is a really interesting collaborative way of working. It's not something I've ever done before, and I absolutely love it. It's a real treat to have two minds working with each other to create a piece. Um, yeah, so I think all those different kinds of work have different um, qualities for me that I love. And I think that one of the things I might do next, and you probably have a question about this, is I would really like to write a book of essays. Um, I've really started to enjoy the essay form, and it would be a nice thing to do to kind of widen what I do away from just writing about, you know, birds and dead people. Um, no, seriously, I mean, I can write about other things. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. isn't that a, m a miserable answer, isn't it? I just love no. all of it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like it's a very politician's answer, isn't it? But it's true. <laughs> Great answer, I loved it. Um, this is an interesting question from the audience. Uh, someone writes, how do you know that a hawk is free from grief? Well, uh, I think that's an extraordinarily good question. I've never been asked that. I guess I thought that Mabel was free from grief because she had never really lost anything. And they are very solitary creatures. If you look at a family of wild goshawks, you begin to realize quite rapidly that they're not a good model for human existence. Um, so for example, as the chicks grow bigger, mm -hmm. the male goshawk is becomes scared of them and won't come to the nest and will just drop food off and disappear. Then there comes a point where the birds all start to get kind of quite violent with each other and then they sort of all just atomize and disappear over the horizon. So 
they're not birds that have strong social bonds with each other, which is why it's so weird that Mabel and I bonded. You know, you can bond really strongly with them if you're a human. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think birds can grieve. I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but I've seen crows grieving over crows that have been hit by cars and standing by them. Um, I know that when I'm upset, if I have a really bad day and I'm having a bit of a weepy day, as we all do, I have a parrot now, by the way. My friends say it's emotionally more healthy, but I've got more <laughs> scars from the parrot than I have from, ever from a hawk. When I'm feeling sad, I mean, the, the, the parrot will fly down and snuggle under my chin and kind of try and comfort me. But then, you know, again, they're social animals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess Mabel, I don't know if they have the capacity to feel grief as we know it, Jim, but um, and they're certainly c capable of quite complex emotions, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this person wants to know, between the two boxes of hawks, why did you choose Mabel? This is so great. So if you've read the book, you know, he gets this bird out and I'm like, Mabel, that's the one. Yeah. And then um, he goes, oh, oh, sorry. Uh, no, actually, you're supposed to have the other one. So we'll just put that one back. It's like some kind of game show, isn't it? There's a goat <laughs> behind one door and a car. In the so he, um, he gets out the other bird, and this is the one I'm supposed to have. And I instantly know it's not right. There's something about this bird that isn't... I'd already bonded with the first one. I don't know. It was, it was a bit like a kind of non-romantic, our eyes met across a crowded room thing. But there was also something about this bird I was a bit scared of. There's something about the way she looked. I just didn't really recognize any kind of emotional contact or communication there. So I had this embarrassing thing where I was pleading with this guy on this quayside to let me have the first one. It was totally, totally visceral feeling. And I, I discovered later, um, I don't know how true this is, but I think it is, that the second bird, the one I was supposed to have had, was unbelievably hard to tame. She was incredibly suspicious of people. She was very, very aggressive. Um, she was completely opposite to, to Mabel's demeanor. Mm. And I think I dodged a bullet because I think mm. if I'd had that bird, I don't, I mean, I'm saying this with absolute seriousness. I don't think, I don't know if I'd have survived that year. Mm. I think it would have been disastrous. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever tiny part of me registered that I'm very thankful for, mm. yeah. A couple questions about if you've seen the movie The Eagle Hunters. No, I haven't seen it that. yet. All right. Well, apparently several people think that you should. Okay, I'll go and see it. <laughs> I will go and see it. The, the, I mean, I, I think this is extraordinary. There's this tradition in Mongolia and parts of Central Asia of people training these golden eagles. They're huge golden eagles. They're, like, they're called Berkut. And the eagles, hunters are called Berkuti. And they ride around on horseback um, with these eagles and they catch foxes with them and they sell the skins. And it's been going on a very long time. It was sort of stamped on a bit during the Soviet Union era. And this film is about a young, a young girl who wants to become an eagle hunter. She's 13, I think. And it follows her, you know, the usual story. And everyone's like, blah, 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 you're a woman. And then she ends up winning. So I don't know if she wins it or she does really well and becomes this sort of amazing eagle hunter. Um, and there's been a little bit of con uh, controversy about it because I know there have been other women eagle hunters in the past. But you know, I mean, it's a film for goodness sake. And she really is, she really did do all that. And she really is clearly an absolutely epic falconer. So um, yeah, what am I doing here? I should be out watching this movie. <laughs> Thank you for the recommendation. Thank you. There's a couple of questions about T.H. White and his yeah. presence in the book. He's such a strong presence. Yes. And this person would like to know if you could tell us more about your decision to include him. And I'd also like to know, was the process of writing the piece about him different 
for you. Yeah. So, um, so I said I mentioned a little bit that he haunted me when I was looking at his uh, archives. Um, and one of the reasons he haunted me was that I, I guess there was a sort of sympathy, a sort of dim sympathy that I, I, I knew that he was hurting and that he thought the gospel was a solution. And when I was small, I read his book and I think I realized even then that here was a man who was broken and he was running away to, to get a gospel because a solution to that, even though it didn't work. So maybe when my father died, that was part of why I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get a gospel. Why did I do? Anyway, it's worked out quite well. So, um, but there was another reason too that he haunted me, and that was I began to see that one of the things this book is about is the lure and the difficulty, and ultimately the importance of trying to see through eyes that are not your own. And one of those pairs of eyes, of course, is the eyes of the hawk, but the other pair of eyes is that of T. H. White. And I wanted to try and get across, you know, and I write about him not in a kind of literary biography way, but I try and get inside his head. And I think we should all do that all the time, is try and get inside the heads of people who are not like us. I think we have a terror of difference. I'm not going to talk about politics right now, but um, I get very scared of a world in which people want everyone to be like them and want everyone around them to just reflect the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the morals that they have. I mean, there are, you know, and I just think that writing about T.H. White was an exercise mm -hmm. in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, oh my God, it's not that he was gay, it was just, he, it was, <laughs> suddenly just realized that made me sound like some kind of terrible monster. It wasn't that, it was just that he was a person that didn't have the loving childhood that I had mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. saw the world in a very dark way because of that and I wanted to get inside his head and see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, I often wish he, I, he'd been born today, I think he would have been fine, you know, in a, in a completely different um, social environment. I think he would have found solace and friendship and love, but in, if you're born in 1906, it was very difficult for him, so. And I just wrote what the book told me, you know, I just started writing and, you know, when T.H. White, I thought, I've got to put some white in here, he just came in, it was very intuitive. Uh, yeah. Kind of in a similar vein, one of the things that I thought was so powerful towards the end of the book was when you talked about kind of the dark tradition of falconry and how it has been in some ways an exclusive and, and a frame for exclusion and also in the recent New York Times piece about swan hunting. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk some more about... About know, class. Yeah. I'm British, I know about class. It's what we do really well. Uh, yeah, so um, falconry... It's very interesting, if you look at the cultures surrounding animal keeping, there's so much kind of social stuff in it. So, I mean, this is another example, which is not about necessarily about falconry, but if you look at, in Britain, there's a, um, there's a very long tradition of marginal communities keeping uh, British birds, like little finches, like goldfinches and things, to sing, and they're beautiful. So, miners, travelers, gypsies, working class families, um, Keeping those kind of birds is massively frowned upon. It's mostly illegal to do so now. And there's another group of people who can keep British birds too, and that's you know, people who want to keep things like British swans and geese and ducks. To do that, you need a lot of water and lakes and ponds. Uh, so traditionally, people who have kept those have been the aristocrats, right? It's completely fine morally to keep those birds. There's not the same kind of, you know, hatred of it in Britain. So these kind of things happen all the time, this way that kind of social class gets kind of, you know, we, we, we see the way we, re we relate to animals as being completely sort of transparent and free of any of this, and yet it's always loaded with our idea of ourselves. Um, and I think that's something that we should 
bear in mind always when thinking about the way we relate to the natural world, you know, how much of it is about us. Mm -hmm. And falconry certainly, you know, it's thought of as a very, very posh aristocratic sport, but um, or art or vocation, but I'm happy to say that um, in, it's not so much anymore. So in Britain now, you know, I know working class lads who've got hawks who will go and ha hunt rats around the back of their apartment buildings, you know. Um, and they, for falconry for them is a way of touching the wild that is not available to them anywhere. They don't live in a country estate, they don't have access to beautiful, you know, wide open countryside, but they can bring wildness to the heart of the city. And they are superb falconers with extraordinary sympathy with their birds. Yeah. So I love that. I love the variousness of it these days. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. These are great questions. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I got a bit, a bit academic there. You know, the old, the old academic voice comes back when I'm kind of doing question and answer sessions. We love it. <laughs> and then we have time for just a couple more. Mm -hmm. One person wants to know if you'd be willing to whistle for us. Just once. Oh, you mean the falcon whistle? Hang on, I better just cover this up. So you put your hand up. Oh, no, that doesn't work. You might want to turn it. You go, I used to go. That's my falcon whistle. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's got sort of a, a round of applause for whistling in a concert hall. You know, my life is very weird. Thank you for the applause. <laughs> What are you reading There's a chill now? down my back. I've not done that for a long time. I'm kind of looking around now, waiting for Maple to come back. It's amazing. <laughs> what have you been reading lately that you love? Well, this is one of the great, great sadnesses, is that uh, uh, I, don't re I haven't been reading very much. Mm. I've been traveling a lot. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's great about going on tour is people give you books. So now, um, although it's not brilliant, because it ends, you end up having to pay enormous amounts of excess baggage on your, on your um, suitcase. Um, I have been reading a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I've recently read some great short stories by... Uh, no, what, what, reading, what I read recently that really, really blew me away? I can't tell you because I've just written a review of something that was really good, but that would be kind of, you know, jumping the gun. I'm not doing very well here, am I? Um, I've got Roxanne Gay's latest book. I'm looking forward to reading that. Mm -hmm. um, I have... Um, Oh my goodness, there's a book by a woman called Clover Stroud in Britain. I get sent a lot of books to read that are about animals and grief these days. I don't know why that should be. <laughs> and I think this is going to be absolutely extraordinary. It's about a family tragedy that happened to her and how she got through it with horses. Um, and it's meant to be extraordinary, so I'll read that. I get sent a lot of books to read now that uh, seem to be related to you know, my book, and also a lot of books on bicycles. I don't know why people think that somehow that I, you know, oh yeah, bicycles, hawks, same thing, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, the, the, my answer is there are a whole bunch of things I'm reading on and off right now, but I don't have time to read. When I get back, I'm not doing any more really touring after this. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to doing is sitting back in my house with a cup of tea and a good book, and I'll let you all know. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, this is a question that I was so curious to know, so I'm so glad someone wrote it. Did Mabel recognize you after she molted? <laughs> this is a great thing. So at the end of the book, again, if you haven't read it, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a total spoilers here, but there's this recognition that um, things change, but that's okay. And all the books sort of made me feel that once I'd put Mabel into this huge aviary for her to spend the summer loafing and having baths and sunbathing, catching rats that went in the aviary and having a nice time growing new feathers, 
Um, you do that because they need a lot of food to grow these lovely new strong feathers, and obviously, you know, you, and, you, and also you need a rest. I mean, frankly, after six months of flying a goshawk, you know, you're sort of you're like a ghost. So she was in there, and I was told that she would, I'd have to start again from scratch the next year. She wouldn't recognize me. She'd be completely wild again. All the books say, if you lose a goshawk, you've got three days. If you don't get it in three days, it's gone. And the moment at the end of the book is that I put her in this aviary, and my heart's, you know, hurting at the thought that when I go back, she won't know who I am and all that we had would be lost, but it was okay. You know, it was okay that that happened. It was another loss, but it was a loss I could bear. So anyway, I went back months later, opened the Avery door, heart in mouth, and she just basically went, oh, hi, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> she totally recognized me. She was as tame with me as she had been the day, you know. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, she was scared of other people, but that bond that we had was super special, and mm -hmm. yeah, so that was, that was, um, I was really cross with the books, but I was overjoyed that she knew who I was, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, a couple questions that ask about, could you talk some about finding beauty after depression and how did you begin to write again? It's tough. Um, you know, it, and again, a little bit like grief, mental health is something that people find very hard to talk about because mm -hmm. it's extremely exposing. Mm -hmm. And also there's that weird thing that happens with, with depression. That's a little bit thing that happens with grief is that people seem to think it's contagious mm -hmm. and they don't want to go near you if you're suffering it. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of horrible kind of isolations that happen. Finding beauty again. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think find help where you can I mean, in terms of dealing with mental health issues and depression, I think find help, go to the doctor, you know, do all the things you can do. Um, and the way I think of it now is that you do all the things you can do and then you basically do the kind of Greek myth, you lash yourself to the mast and you just wait and eventually you will come out the other side of the storm and you will look up and there will be a patch of sky and you will see it's beautiful. And when you're in those dark places, you know, you could look at the most exquisite thing in the world and you won't see the beauty there. Mm -hmm. um, just trust, trust in time passing, trust in things getting better, um, which is of course the hardest thing to do when you're down because the worst thing about any strong emotion is it gives you the absolute conviction that it will last forever. Mm -hmm. And um, there's beauty there, it will come. As for writing, uh, I wrote a lot when I was depressed. Um, a lot of it was very bad, some of it was very beautiful. And I remember when I was going to the doctors to talk about taking antidepressants, part of me was thinking, I'm not gonna take the drugs because I won't be able to, I won't be in that space where I can be, you know, I could write with this. You know, because I felt everything very, very keenly at the time and I felt that it was really helping my writing. So I wrote all this stuff when I was feeling quite knocked out because the first few weeks are hard on antidepressants. You feel quite like you're stuffed with cotton wool. I'm writing all this stuff and being convinced that it was absolute nonsense and that my, you know, my abilities had gone. And then I remember uh, about six months later, I was reading through this stuff and I just started laughing. There's absolutely no difference between them at all. It was all in my sense of self-belief, so yeah. Well, I know that you've told us that a good book lies ahead and some essays. Um, what else is next? What else is next? Essays, book, documentary, uh, holiday. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, I'm going to tell them about holiday. Yeah. This is not the kind of answer you're supposed to give in a lecture hall about your, you know, you've done a talk about your book. So um, I'm doing a few more lectures and then I'm going to uh, Los Angeles. And my friend Christina from the book, you know, the Australian philosopher, mm -hmm. um, who's been kicked out of England because uh, the British government have changed all of the visa requirements to, because there's a huge anti-immigrant sentiment there and it's making it harder and harder for anyone to stay again. Yes. Um, anyway, she's joining me in LA and I've hired a Nissan Rogue and we're going to drive up the coast on the coast road and do and kind of do kind of LA things. Uh, so yeah, um, I can't believe I've just told everyone about that. I'm going to have a holiday next. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm sure that I speak for all of us here tonight when saying it's a very richly deserved holiday. Oh, Thank you bless so you. Thank you much. So, I've had such a nice time. Thank you very here. much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're a truly lovely audience, really. Thank you very much. I hope to see you again. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Helen McDonald is the author of H is for Hawk. She spoke at Benaroya Hall on February 1st. Thanks to Seattle Arts and Lectures and Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.